0: and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 92, Those Left Behind. Last time, as the convoy pedestal began to round Cape Bon, the most northeastern peninsula of Tunisia, on August 12th, just before midnight, the ships had become a scattered, bloodied mess. Three ships had been sunk within the last few hours, and the oil tanker Ohio was severely damaged, but now operating under its own power. All this in exchange for one JU-88. Leading the fractured convoy were minesweeping destroyers, followed by a few warships. Behind them were the first of the surviving merchant vessels, the Glenorchy, Almeria-likes, and Warangi. Behind them, and only having the destroyer Pathfinder for protection, were the Melbourne Star, Wairamara, santa elisa dorset and rochester castle further behind was the damaged tanker ohio protected by the destroyer ledbury yet they were not the last astern of the tanker was the port chalmers and the destroyer penn off on its own was the brisbane star along the tunisian coast As unorganized as pedestal was at this moment, it had the good fortune of having some of its escorts come upon the awaiting e-boats first. Vessels from the Italian 18th Squadron were picked up, though they had hoped by sitting still they would not be detected. Yet as that did not happen, they activated engines almost while simultaneously firing off torpedoes. The leading escorts dodged the fish and then chased after, the e-boats. For the next 30 minutes or so, a running battle developed between the fleeing e-boats and the pursuing warships. Numerous Italian torpedoes were released, yet no British ships were hit. To be fair, none of the Italian or German boats were sunk either. Clearly, this was not going to work for the Axis forces, so some of them risked stopping and going silent to let the escorts go past them. Before too long, two Italian e-boats came upon that part of the convoy line near the coastal town of Ras Mustafa. They both let loose their attack at 1.04 a.m. at a cruiser. They had closed in to within 800 meters of the vessel, but because of mechanical failures on both ships' fish, neither scored a hit. Assisting the Axis forces, yet not meaning to, were the lighthouses, at Cape Bon and Calabia, along the Tunisian coast. Technically, French-controlled Tunisia was neutral, but those lights made it possible for the Axis forces to sit back and watch for silhouettes of the British ships to pass by. The gunner of the Charybdis asked for permission to shoot out the light at Calabia, but as it was an international signal, it could not be done. There was nothing for it, so the British went on, as best they could, as for the two Italian e-boats that had missed earlier, mas 16 and mas 22, they soon came upon another ship, this time the cruiser Manchester. Yet, as they did not want to risk another miss, both boats moved in closer, easily less than one hundred yards, and fired off torpedoes at 107 a.m The Manchester, becoming aware of the attack, turned towards the Italians and used their two forward triple six turrets to take out the ships before they could do anything else. Yet it was too late. Seconds later, the Manchester, the only undamaged cruiser left in pedestal, jerked as the resulting explosions rocked it. The two torpedoes made contact just behind the engine room on the starboard side. As for the Italians, they got away, unharmed. Upon contact, an officer and twelve men of the Manchester were instantly killed. The lights in the engine room went out, and water started rushing in. That didn't stop until the compartment only had a foot between the ceiling and the waves. Still, the men of Manchester went into action. Some started searching for and rescuing the injured. Others rushed to put out the fire in the boiler room. The listing to starboard started right away. As the men rushed around, there was no panicked, stricken screams. The men had rehearsed for this, had actually done this before. So, in a professional way, each got on with their task. Within minutes, the lights were back on, well, most of them and when Captain Drew mustered some of the men on the upper deck, he calmly informed them, She will do two to two and a half knots. With counter-pumping using emergency power, the list went from twelve degrees to five within a short time. Though the men of the Manchester were resolutely calm, their compatriots aboard the merchantmen were another matter entirely. Seeing how quickly the escorts could be made useless, the merchant ships again believed they were on their own. Right after the Manchester was hit, she started that familiar pattern of moving in a slow, lazy circle. So as the Waringi and Elmeria likes came upon the Manchester, they moved in behind her, thinking she was taking avoiding action. When they learned the truth, the captain of the Almeria Likes, an American ship from New Jersey, told his British liaison officer, Let's get the hell out of this. The Brit agreed. The Likes moved further out to sea and then continued its course. Around one forty that morning, the destroyer Pathfinder, escorting the Melbourne Star and two other vessels, came upon the stalled Manchester. Commander Gibbs of the Pathfinder told the three merchant ships to continue on, that he would assist his fellow escort. Yet after the two captains talked it through, yelling from one bridge to the other, it was decided that the Pathfinder would also continue on to protect the merchant ships that had recently been ordered to move on. However, 158 men of the Manchester's crew were taken aboard the Pathfinder, and only then did it attempt to catch up to the civilian ships. Before too long, the Pathfinder did catch up to the Melbourne Star, who herself had been left behind by the other two merchantmen, as they could travel faster. So, did so, for safety reasons. Nor could the Melbourne keep up with the Pathfinder, so it too slowly disappeared into the night on ahead. Luckily for the Melbourne as she was carrying 1,359 tons of high-octane, 700 tons of kerosene, and 1,450 tons of shells, was not spotted that night by an e-boat. A little behind the Melbourne was the cargo ship Rochester Castle. Attempting to sniff her out was the e-boat Mas 26, which seemed to have the luck with her that night in locating enemy ships. But that wasn't her only luck. Spotted by the cargo ship SS Dorset, the British vessel, not ready to shoot at the MAS-26, attempted to ram the vessel as it came upon their starboard side. Yet contact was avoided by mere yards. The e-boat then disappeared into the blackness. Seconds later, it spotted the Rochester Castle and fired a torpedo. The British vessel had spotted the attacker as well and attempted to turn away, but the torpedo had already been launched. The explosion came near the number three hold of the Rochester, creating a hole twenty five by eighteen feet. Water rushed in. Somehow the cargo ship maintained its thirteen knots, yet soon its front end was low in the water. Just before 2am, the leading warships were just passing the Calibia Light, located on the top eastern part of Cape Bon. Just behind them were the Glen Orky and the Elmeria Likes. The Glen Orky, a cargo ship, had already battled that night with an e-boat, causing it some damage, yet it was still operable and on the hunt. The supply vessel, as it passed by the Calibia Light, was spotted by the e-boats Moss 26 and Moss 31. The latter Italian vessel came within 700 meters of the Glenorchy and released two torpedoes, striking its target on the port side. A nearby destroyer fired on Moss 31, but did not inflict any serious damage. Glenorchy's engine room immediately flooded, and the ship listed to port. Some of the men panicked and lowered a few undamaged lifeboats, then jumped overboard to flee. As the ship was carrying aviation fuel, it was decided to abandon her, and quickly too, before the flames reached the cargo. Third mate, Mr. Simon, quickly grabbed the ship's books containing sensitive documents, shoved them into a bag designed to sink, and threw them overboard. Yet, as Captain Leslie ordered the crew, all 124 of them, to abandon ship, he made it clear he would be staying on board. The men pleaded for Leslie to come with them, but he wanted to get the potential powder cake away from the lifeboats. The crew, dejected, paddled away. When second mate Skelling found out that the captain was still aboard, he unloaded many of his current passengers and told them all that he was bringing the captain away from the death trap whether he wanted to go or not. Yet on the way back, Skelling found and took on several men who had jumped earlier and now needed rescuing. By the time they were brought on board, the Glenorchy could not be found. Not long after this, just as the head of the convoy was past the Kaliba Light, Moss 26 spotted the leading ships again, yet they had also spotted her. Lighting up the night with star shells, projectiles that floated down giving off light, the E-boat was located and fired upon, by both a destroyer and a steamer, the Italians' intended target. Pouring on the speed, the Italians dodged and weaved in between the explosions around it, while answering with its own machine gun fire. Then Captain Bencini saw a cruiser coming at him. Clearly outmatched, he fired two torpedoes at the cruiser and then fled. Yet the destroyer, it turned out to be the Pathfinder, stayed close to the e-boat. Bencini, desperate, laid down smoke, dropped death charges to hopefully confuse the Pathfinder, and made best speed. But the destroyer stayed hard upon. Not until the e-boat reached the minefields did the British vessel back off. By then, the Pathfinder had received word that another E-boat was up ahead of the cargo vessels, waiting for its chance. The destroyer was brought about and made best speed back to the convoy. The cruiser and cargo ship left behind were come upon by Moss 23 and mas 25. The E-boats, thinking the two remaining ships were relatively easy picking with the destroyer gone, were brought up short by the intense defensive fire of both vessels. Again, lights were shot into the sky, the E-boats visible to the various gun crews. Moss 25 fired off a long-range torpedo that was easily dodged. Then the Italians withdrew. As the Pathfinder rejoined the two other ships, they all moved on. But unbeknownst to them, they had a fourth in the party. E-boat Moss 31, which was back in the area and had spotted the British vessels. Staying behind the three enemy ships, Captain Calvani continuously reported in their locations by wireless, hoping to get some help in launching an attack. Yet no other E-boats responded. Moss 31 continued to follow, but did not attack the cargo ship, as the two warships would chase her down. By 3.15 a.m., Captain Calvani had come to the end of his area of responsibility. Turning his ship around, he soon came upon two other e-boats. They conferred, but decided not to break orders by going any further south. Instead, they would go back north and look for any other straggling ships still coming their way. The three British vessels never knew how lucky they had just been. Closer to the coast, the damaged light cruiser Kenya turned seaward at 2.20 a.m., having decided to make for a relative straight line to Malta, projecting to go just south of Pantelleria. But before too long, she came upon the refrigerated cargo vessel Santa Elisa. Though the Kenya was damaged and the latter a civilian vessel, their combined might offered some protection. Things went much better for the transport ship, Port Chalmers, though behind the Kenya, and thus having a longer route and a greater chance of being attacked, the cargo ship was found by the destroyer, Brahman. Soon after, another destroyer, the Pen, came alongside. Knowing they were far behind the balance of the convoy, it was decided that they also would take a direct route, though they were more to the north, which would mean they would travel through the Italian's minefield. Yet, with Penn in the lead and the Brahmin bringing up the rear, this mini-convoy sailed through the dangerous waters and made up considerable time. For the last few hours, Captain Drew of the damaged Manchester and his crew had been trying to make the ship go. But it was not to be. This had happened to Drew a year ago, and at the time, the Manchester had been able to make its way back to Gibraltar. That wasn't going to happen this time. The crew was sitting in their own coffin if they did not leave the ship soon. Around 3 a.m., the 13 officers and 308 men, some of those rescued earlier, got aboard their Carly floats and boats, set scuttling charges on their ship, and set off. As had happened before, the British warship seemed determined not to sink. And though it took hours, the light cruiser HMS Manchester made its last journey of 20 fathoms straight down. As for the British personnel, they were rescued and then interned by the neutral French. The crew had rowed for six miles and were exhausted by the time they reached land. Their first night was spent in a morgue, yet because of their fatigue, they all slept soundly. About 2.50 a.m., the Charybdis, Eskimo, and Somali happily found some of the escorts. They were soon joined by the Kenya and her two destroyers. Not ten minutes later, the group of British ships were come upon by two Italian e-boats, Mas 554 and 552. As the Santa Elisa and Warangi were both to the rear, the Italians went after them. Yet the crew of the Kenya spotted the approaching e-boats first, so opened up with her close-range armaments. The noise alerted the other two ships, who also started firing. But by then, both attackers had already launched their torpedoes. Captain Gordon of the Warangi later noted locating the e-boat on his port side, and their guns engaged, yet a torpedo hit near his number three hold. The ship shook as a shock of water shot into the air, with the resulting listing as water rushed in. Captain Gordon put out an SOS. Of course, the Italians were the first to pick up the signal, which for them confirmed the ship was going down, which wasn't quite the case. Around the same time, as the Ameria likes was trailing the Somali, she was hit by a torpedo, either from the German sub S-30 or S-36. Both had fired at the same time. Unfortunately, the ship was carrying ammunition in every hold, yet the bombs in the number one hold were not near the ship's outer wall. Hence, there was no secondary explosion. Still, within minutes, the ship came to a stop, which made it an easy target. Captain William knew he had to get his men off board before a second torpedo came. Their rescue boats were lowered and the men climbed in. After a thorough search to make sure all were accounted for, the ships rowed away and made contact with an escort at 4.30. Yet the captain of that vessel looked out and saw that the Ameria likes was still afloat. He therefore told them to go back to their boat. Before anyone could explain the situation, the escort resumed its course. At 4.48 a.m., it was the turn of the Santa Elisa. Approaching her was the Italian e-boat Moss 557. The two exchanged gunfire. As the attackers were aiming at the bridge, the bullets barely missed Captain Thomas, yet hit and killed four men manning the guns. The merchant's gun crews kept up their fire, though, and managed to force the E-boat to miss with its torpedo attack. Yet when the MAS 564 E-boat came by, its torpedo struck at point-blank range. Right away, the aviation fuel aboard the cargo ship leaked out and caught on fire. There was a secondary explosion that knocked several crewmen off their feet. Clearly, the ship was lost, and so the men jumped aboard what rescue craft they still had. The 28-man crew got away, yet five of them were badly burned. As the small boats rowed away, the first streaks of light of August 13th began to appear. The only ones sad to see the night end were the Italian crews of the E-boat squadrons. Never before in a single day or night had so many enemy ships been sunk severely damaged, or forced to be abandoned. As for the crews of those now lost ships, some were dead, some wounded, some burned, and some without a scratch. But now they, in whatever condition, had to deal with the enemy vessels still patrolling the area and the neutral French waiting on shore to intern those who managed to find their way to land. And thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 93, All But Certain. Last time, we left off with the British sailors of the various doomed ships and their uncertain fates. The crew of the wrecked Clan Ferguson, after clearing the area of their ship, waited in the darkness to be picked up by an escort ship. But none came. When the sun rose on August 13th, the various lifeboats spotted each other and rowed to join up. During the night, they had drifted apart and believed the others were lost or had been rescued. But none had such luck. Land was soon spotted with the day's light, but it turned out to be Zembra Island, to the north of Cape Bon and just outside the Gulf of Tunis. As that was controlled by the French... If any of the boats landed there, the men would spend the rest of the war as quasi-prisoners, being held against their will, but not judged or punished. Mainly, they would be out of the war, and none of them wanted that. As their vessels were well stocked, the various groups of men decided to abide a while longer afloat, hoping an escort would come looking for them. Around noon, a shape was spotted seaward. The men signaled as best they could with their red sail, yet as the vessel approached, it turned out to be not a British cruiser or destroyer, but an Italian sub. Captained by Buldrini, the Bronzo came to within thirty feet of the closest boat, not trusting the seemingly hapless enemy. Buldrini called out an Italian, asking if there were any wounded among them. The British gave no reply. The mistrust went both ways. The captain asked again, this time in English, but was met with the same silence. As best as can be ascertained, the Italians were earnest in attempting to help anyone who needed assistance. But as no information had been forthcoming, Buldrini reported the rescue boat's position to the Italian Air Sea Rescue Headquarters and then slowly moved away. Careful to avoid the various debris floating in the area, the Italian sub eventually disappeared from sight. Around 2 that afternoon, a German Dornier float plane was spotted overhead and soon landed. The Germans made it clear that they would be taking men away, but stressed to be told of the wounded to make sure they left first. Some thirty-seven men were loaded onto the Dornier. The five badly burned men were the first to be taken aboard. And right away, the German Red Cross got to work, easing the men's pain. The rest were told that the plane would be back for them when they could. With that, the plane took off and headed to the northeast. Another two hours went by until the German plane was spotted again. Yet by this time, the wind had picked up, which pushed the remaining boats closer to the French coast and made the waters choppy. The Dornier flew in circles for a while, obviously trying to decide whether to risk landing and risk an operation, even a rescue one, in French waters. After a few more circles, the plane straightened out and headed, presumably, for home. Again, the boats were pushed around by the wind. The men, Baked by the sun. Silence reigned. As the waters grew more rough, the boats were pulled apart. About 7 p.m., an Italian float plane, with red cross markings, landed. Yet as the plane was small, only seven men could be taken aboard. And even this was almost too much for the aircraft. Still, the pilot managed to get his plane aloft. There were only now two boats left one commanded by Captain Cosser, the other by Second Officer Black. As both men knew, it came down to who could get to them first, their countrymen or the Axis, and the latter had the advantage of knowing approximately where they were. By now the boats were only a mile from Cape Bon, and unbeknownst to the survivors, they were being watched from the shore. Just as the British sailors were about to give up and row towards land, another small Italian rescue plane landed. Three British officers were forced on board. All this was watched by the French, who then chose to come out and ask the Italians what they were up to, clearly being in French waters. The Italians, not sure how to proceed, contacted Admiral Zalza back in Italy, yet French Admiral Durian was nearby on shore, and sent men with guns to remove the British prisoners. Whether it was the proximity of the French Admiral or the guns his men held, the British were taken off the Italian plane. This bit of drama happened to the second officer's boat. Captain Cosser's vessel had drifted away before this and made landfall around noon. There, two Italian farmers found the men and took them home offering food, wine, and cigarettes. Yet later, the officials came and took the men to an intern camp. There, they met up with the other part of the crew, who had been brought ashore. Eventually, both groups of men would be interned at Lakeith for the rest of the war. As for some of the men of the cargo ship Glenorchy, their story was less harrowing and ended happily. Nine men of Glenorchy's crew were picked up by an Italian E boat, the rest made it to shore on their own. As the men who made landfall looked out, they saw their ship, the Glenorchy, still afloat. Eight men volunteered to row back to the ship, to sink her, before the enemy could get to it. But at that moment the vessel turned over and sank. Eventually all of Glenorchy's crew would be interned at Safax, just south of Cape Bon. Yet their internment would end when the Allies came ashore in North Africa, that November, in the guise of Operation Torch. As for the ocean liner now transport ship, the SS Warangi, it was simply the ship that refused to go down. When the crew left the vessel, In the early morning of August 13th, she was under attack, water was rushing in, and Chief Engineer Alexander Chalmers was desperately trying to simultaneously revive the engines and pump out much of the water. Yet the engines refused to come back to life, and the water pumps were unable to push out more than was coming in. As the Warangi was still under attack, with little hope of getting underway or pumping out water, Captain Gordon decided it was time to abandon ship and then scuttle her. The explosions were set. The crew disembarked. The boats rowed away. Explosions could be heard. But as the sound of battle died away, it became clear that the warangi was not giving up the ghost. She might yet still be salvaged by the enemy. Captain Gordon sought volunteers to go back and finish off their ship. Men were chosen, but the leader would be Chief Engineer Chalmers. Rowing back to the slowly sinking ship, the men opened several watertight doors. More water rushed in. The men considered their job done. After the crew was together again, it came down to waiting to see who would show up first and rescue them. The answer was an Axis search craft. Having their position reported, soon a Heinkel flew over, then circled back, to launch two torpedoes at the still-mostly-floating Warangi. Somehow, the fish missed this immobile target. Thirty minutes later, around 6.30 a.m. of August 13th, another Heinkel came and again launched two torpedoes, and again missed. The stranded British crew, watching all this, started to wonder why they were the ones needing assistance. Around 8 a.m., Captain Gordon spotted two destroyers. They were looking for the Warangi, but were confused as she was mostly still above water, but her crew was out in the rescue boats. Gordon activated an Aldous lamp, used for sending Morse code, to get the attention of the destroyer Eskimo. The 79 men were picked up. The Eskimo went on, now searching for the Manchester. As for the Warangi, she was still afloat, though her poop, the top part aft, was covered with water. She would go down, but was taking her sweet time. As for the two American vessels, the Santa Elisa and the Ameria Likes, their crews had vastly different experiences once they left their ships. As we have seen, the Santa Elisa caught fire rather quickly, the crew abandoned ship, only to be picked up by the Pen and Brahmin. Yet early that day of August 13th, when the 105-man crew of the Almeria likes rode away, their vessel was still afloat. Captain Henderson then asked for volunteers to, once again, board the ship and continue the voyage. But the crew saw enemy planes overhead, taking photos. If anyone boarded the ship and tried to get it underway, they would be fair game for another attack. The crew demurred. More than a little disgusted, Captain Henderson, along with the British liaison officer, the first assistant engineer, and a junior officer cadet, rode back to scuttle the American ship built in New Jersey. After all, the men were right about one thing. If it was seen that they were attempting to restart their journey, the vessel would be fair game to attack once more. So, chargers were set and blown, but still the ship refused to go down. Around 9.30 a.m., when the destroyer Somali found the crew and took them aboard, the stubborn ship was still afloat, but her men were safe. Meanwhile, far to the west, later that day, en route to Gibraltar, was the damaged destroyer Foresight, escorted by the less damaged destroyer Tartar. The latter had been with Foresight ever since she was damaged in the massive air attack on the afternoon of the 12th. The two ships had established a tow alongside when, around 8 p.m. of the 12th, they spotted five planes coming in. The two ships tried to maneuver so both could get effective shots at the coming enemy. That's when the tow line got caught up in the Tartar's propellers. Fortunately, the planes left off without attacking, either because they lacked fuel or they respected the warship's guns. Only later was the cable untangled, and once again, the two destroyers started west. Yet then, two Ju-88s showed up probably short on fuel, as they attacked rather offhandedly, and then flew away. Around 8.50 p.m., several surface ships were spotted coming from further west. Right away, the Tartar removed the cables and put herself in between the crippled foresight and whatever was coming their way. Fortunately for them, it was the Charybdis, Eskimo, and Somali sent to reinforce Force X. And though the Tartar signaled these ships, they kept going, as they were under orders to find the merchantmen and give them protection. The two destroyers continued on west, but as the hours went past, the foresight sank lower into the water, despite repairs made. At 5.15 a.m. of the 13th, the cables snapped as the weight of the foresight increased. The Tartar reconnected the ships, but clearly there would come a time when the two ships would have to be separated. Still, the two captains did not want to give up. The ships continued on together. Around eight fifteen a.m. August thirteenth, not only were enemy search planes spotted, but the Tartar also picked up U seventy three, which was the sub that sunk the carrier eagle. Before the Tartar could launch its own attack, the sub sent off four torpedoes, but all missed. This gave the functioning destroyer time to slip its line and react with its own death charge attack. With the Germans chased away, the two commanders again talked. Time was not on their side, nor distance. There would come a point when the foresight would be too heavy to tow or slow down the tartar enough where it could not defend both ships. The decision both captains had been dreading was finally made. The remaining crew of the foresight was brought over. The damaged vessel disappeared beneath the waves after receiving a torpedo from her sister ship at 9.55 a.m. on August 13th. The Tartar made its way at full speed safely to Gibraltar. As for the lone oil tanker, the American-made Ohio, she was back on course. But her very movement at 13 knots was risking all. The tanker's deck was split across the center, and every adjustment made caused the metal to moan. If the split continued, the entire vessel would break into two pieces, its contents spilling out. As her speed was better than most of the other damaged ships, the Ohio was almost caught up to the main body of the convoy, those that were still afloat. As the dawn rose on August 13th, the two cruiser squadrons of Admiral Zara did not appear on the northern horizon. They had been just north of Sicily on the 12th and were reported making their way south. Per the Italian's standard defense of Malta, the Italian naval vessels would wait until the majority of the British escorts would fall off, and for the convoy ships to run the narrows, so they could be attacked by the E-boats, and thus weakened further. By now, that is what had happened. And though the cruisers were ordered to make for a position south of Pantelleria, to wait for the injured and reduced convoys and its escorts, the Italian's then received conflicting orders. To be sure, the British headquarters at Malta was not unduly worried on the morning of August 12th. The remaining escorts at pedestal should be able to handle, with all due respect, the cruisers of the Italian Navy. However, by the morning of the 13th, their outlook had changed significantly because of the number and condition of the escorts after their night of hell. Back at Malta, Air Vice Marshal Park and Vice Admiral Latham were now worried sick over what the morning would bring for Pedestal. These men knew they had to do something, but their 15 torpedo bombers could not take off until there was adequate daylight on the 13th, which meant by the time they reached the combat area, the battle would be over. The remains of Pedestal would be at the bottom of the Mediterranean. Something had to be done. Something other than an outright attack. It was time for some sleight of hand. Flying over the two cruiser divisions of Dezara was a Wellington aircraft reporting their position to park. It was replaced at 11.05 p.m. on August 12th when its fuel was low. That pilot reported that Yes, the fleet was still headed to the south, at 20 knots. Parks, who had very little in his cupboard as for attacking, decided to gamble. He told the pilot to report in the open, as in to use normal language, in reporting the ship's position, so a supposed and imagined large airstrike could be made against it. This was done every 30 minutes, with the non-existent airstrike getting closer and closer. However, the Italians continued to steam south. The next pilot in the rotation did the same thing, yet this time, his reports were not a complete lie. There were, in fact, two albacores en route to bomb the ships. Park knew they could not sink significant numbers or cause enough damage to force the ships to turn around, but hopefully... Maybe, between the radio chatter and the slight attack, it would be enough. And it was. At one o five a.m. during the early morning of August 13th, just before the two got there, the two cruiser divisions, which should have been enough to sink the entirety of pedestal, had the Italians been willing to take some losses, turned north and headed for Palermo. Yet, There is more to the story. As nice as it would be for the British to think that their bluff turned around two cruiser divisions, the decision to turn back the attacking force was made at midnight by Mussolini himself. Earlier that day, there was another battle forming as to whether the Italian fighters would go with the cruisers or protect bombers going out that day. As the fighting, in the form of communiques escalated, the question reached Il Duce. As expected, he, favoring his air force, decided the fighters would go with the bombers, and so ordered the cruisers to turn around. And yet the Italian Navy was valued too, to the point that it rarely saw action. General Kesselring, the commander-in-chief of the South, wrote of this episode, that he was not surprised the Italian ships, a part of what he called a fine-weather fleet, was not risked, even though the potential reward was staggering. Kesselring would later write that the Germans flew somewhere between 75% and 90% of the sorties, thus preserving the Italian navy, while Mussolini did what he could to preserve the Italian air force. But this should not be seen entirely as cowardice. The Italians had spent vast amounts of resources on these two branches of the military, hence did not want to see them lost. But as the Italians found out, in relative short order, the stratagem of having a large fleet of ships, or planes, is meaningless, if the enemy is still willing to engage anyway, and lose men and material. And the British Long-time warriors of the sea were such a people. Not unexpectedly, the British were profoundly happy that the cruisers were ordered to veer off. Yet, for some of those Italian ships, their nightmare hadn't even begun. Of course, there was still death and destruction in Pedestal's future. As for the Italians, for the moment, it seemed as if the worst thing that had happened to their ships was a massive waste of fuel, of time, and a sting to their pride. Yet they were all still alive, which outweighed such pain. With the two divisions sailing north, they were ordered back to different points. The 3rd cruiser division were for Naples. The 7th made its way back to Messina. Yet waiting for it were two British submarines, the safari and the Unbroken, the latter captained by Lieutenant Mars, an apt name as events would show. Currently, the Unbroken was west of Messina, as it had been hounded out of its earlier position by intense depth-charge attacks. But then Captain Simpson, captain of submarines at Malta, informed Mars that the 7th was on its way, possibly back to his original hunting ground. The question for Mars was, should he speed back there and await the 7th, or would they, thinking the British sub was chased away, come more south, where he now was, to make a straight line for home? One of his deciding factors was that he only had four torpedoes left, which gave him enough to attack, but not enough to defend himself afterwards. The captain decided to stay put, going on one his instincts, having learned something of the Italians, and two, their lack of fuel. After four hours of waiting, quiet as a church mouse, Captain Mars soon detected and then visually confirmed the Italians' presence. Coming at him were four cruisers in line, with eight destroyers escorting and two seaplanes overhead guarding the fleet. Mars quickly chose his target a heavy cruiser. As he would only get one shot, the cruiser was selected because, if he missed, a nearby light cruiser would then be the recipient. And luck was with the unbroken, as only three destroyers were on his side of the cruiser line. Moving in closer to increase his chances, but also pushing his luck, Mars determined that the fleet was moving at 25 knots. Lining up his sub, his last four fish were set at fourteen and sixteen feet depths. The first destroyer went past the Unbroken. It, none the wiser. Then the second, then the third destroyer, went by. That's when the Unbroken launched its last four torpedoes. Whether his fish hit or not, there was nothing more Mars could do but clear the area, "'so took his sub down to eighty feet and away from the fleet at nine knots. "'The next two minutes and fifteen seconds were a hellish eternity for the British crew. "'Yet they were rewarded with the report of an explosion. "'Then a second one, fifteen seconds later. "'The first fish struck the heavy cruiser Bolzano, which entered her oil tank. "'Though only one sailor died as a result,' a fire erupted, which threatened the ship's magazines. The Bolzano's captain, Mezzadra, stayed calm and drove his ship aground on Paneria at 1.30 p.m. She would be refloated two days later and put in for repairs at Naples. The second torpedo hit the light cruiser Munzio Attendolo near the ship's forward. The damage here was much more dramatic, ripping off its front section of 60 feet. Yet the tough ship still managed to reach Messina later that evening. For the next 45 minutes, the destroyers hunted and harassed the Unbroken with depth charges. But as they had set them to explode at shallow depths, the sub, now at 120 feet, was relatively safe. The destroyers searched for the British vessel until 9.30 p.m., but then gave up and headed for home. Mars, unable to strike back, did the same thing, reaching Malta on August 18th. As for the two damaged ships, they would be bombed and destroyed while in dock. Later, Admiral Weinkold, commander of the German Navy, Italian Command, would write, "...a more useless waste of firing power cannot be imagined." As for Il Duce, he, according to Foreign Minister Ciano, his son in law, wrote in his exhaustive diary, Mussolini is moderately satisfied with the results because the guns of the navy were not engaged in battle. Much has been written of the Italians' actions, or lack thereof, in the war, but it must be remembered that Hitler had chosen, even pursued, the Italian leader to be his comrade. Now, he was living with the results. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. I'm sorry these episodes are late, but the holidays messed me up. Um, So here you go, and I will not wait until the end of December to get out the next ones, which hopefully will be coming to the end of this and moving on to another topic. Uh, Again, just wanted to offer up another hairy set to the members, again, thanking you. So just send me an email to www.iipodcast at gmail.com. And in the subject area, just put blue Silver. And, um, and then we'll select another winner, probably right after Christmas. As for some of you others who have actually won, please get in touch with me at the same email address so I can get your address and ship it to you. Uh, if I don't hear from you by June of next year, I'm going to recycle them and offer them again. So please contact me uh, when you can. And I hope everybody has a safe and wonderful holiday. Take care, everyone.